Oh, sorry, I didn't see you there. Just getting a drink of water. Welcome to Riding Westward. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. In recent weeks, headlines and news programs have highlighted countless crises concerning water in the West. Reservoirs are at record low levels. With Lake Powell and Lake Mead, the impounded water sources that millions depend on near dead pool levels where they will cease to provide water or energy. Flooded archaeological sites are resurfacing. Lost boats and other items that were once on lake beds are now in open view. Even dead bodies stuffed into barrels have been found as waters recede. Now is the time to think about water and how we manage it. So this month, we speak with Dr. Christian S. Harrison about his 2021 book, All the Water the Law Allows, Las Vegas and Colorado River Politics. If ever there was an urgent topic for us to consider, this is it. Thanks for listening. For new listeners, allow me to take a moment to explain a bit about writing westward and myself. Each episode features a conversation with people writing about the North American West. Historians, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, sociologists, and others. By showcasing their work, I hope to spark your curiosity to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the peoples who call it home. If a writer or topic intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation. With me playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and everything else. All tasks for which I have no training. But I am passionate about the North American West, so this difficult work is well worth the excuse to read more books and talk to interesting people. At the end of each episode, I'll include a little bit more information about me and my scholarship, and about the Red Center, our public programming and projects, and funding opportunities that you could apply for. With that, let me introduce a little bit more about today's guest and why we're talking to them. Christian S. Harrison is an environmental historian in the state of Nevada. He holds a PhD in history from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, teaches government at Coronado High School in Henderson, Nevada, and is a board member of the nonprofit Preserve Nevada, where he works to engage public school teachers in historic preservation efforts throughout the state. His book that we discuss today, All the Water the Law Allows, Las Vegas and Colorado River Politics, was published by the University of Oklahoma Press in 2021 in their The Environment in Modern North America series. In this book, Harrison dives deep into the history of water usage and management in the greater Las Vegas region. From a relatively small population that thrived mostly off groundwater alone into the mid-20th century, rapid growth in the second half of the 20th century in Las Vegas led to their drawing Colorado River water as well as the creation of a unique region-wide water agency, the Southern Nevada Water Authority, or SNWA, which eventually came to essentially represent the entire state in negotiations with the federal government and other states over water allocations from the Colorado River. It is a unique story, and Harrison's in-depth narration lays bare pitfalls and possibilities that water users, municipalities, large regions, and entire states across the West would be wise to study. 
The intersecting crises of water shortages, climate change, and rapid population growth in the Southwest demand we pay attention. These problems won't solve themselves, and Harrison offers us glimpses of potential ways to work our way through them. Dr. Christian S. Harrison, welcome to Writing Westward. Hello. Uh, unfortunately, your book on water and water management and drought uh, is very timely. It's, it's kind of sad when we work on challenging topics and you know they continue to be challenging. We haven't solved the problems, have we? Right. In a way, it's kind of, um, I guess it's both the, uh, the best case scenario and the worst case scenario for a historian. You know, we like to dig into the archives and make sure that everything we're, we're talking about is deep in the past and uh, people who are alive can't immediately um, fact check you. So that's uh, one of the <laughs> disconcerting things about this. Uh, not that uh, I, I lack confidence in my, my research skills. It's just the, uh, the complexity of um, dealing with uh, the history of the Colorado River is um, truly daunting. Uh, so that's, that's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm glad it's relevant, but uh, in the back of my mind, I'm just, you know, waiting for that, that, that fact checker to say, hey, you know what, you got this wrong. So, uh, so far, so good. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it is certainly a, a relevant topic these days. Yeah. And as, you know, as politicians and policymakers and just general citizens are desperate for answers when there are these pressing problems and they turn to us because our work is suddenly relevant, but generally there's no simple, easy answers, which is not right. always what they want to hear. So that can be frustrating as well. Um, but in recent weeks, or I mean, in the last month or so, there's been quite a few headlines, uh, you know, the the low levels of Lake Powell and Lake Mead, you know, getting close to Deadpool mm -hmm. uh, levels, uh, the resurfacing of archaeological sites that had been flooded, the resurfacing of dead bodies in barrels that mobsters, right. you know, or someone <laughs> dumped in Lake Mead. Uh, we're coming up on the 100-year anniversary of the Colorado River Compact in November. Right. Right. And um, then I think I sent you an email, but just last week, um, John Oliver's last week tonight program on HBO did a whole feature on water in which they he talked right. quite a bit about Las Vegas. So you're you're in the news. This is a very I couldn't have picked a better book for this month, I guess. Awesome. Yeah, it uh, it there there is a lot of sensational news coming out, you know, with the dead bodies and barrels. But, um, you know, the big the big story of course is just the widespread um water shortage that is being felt across this broad region and what <laughs> it's nice that people are noticing now but like like this is we're in the final phases of like before there's there's real problems you know this has been a problem that we've known about for many years um but you know, we're, we're only now, you know, the feet are truly to the fire. Humans are terrible at long range, you know, kind of like let's plan for the future kind of a thing. We, we do much better if it's staring us in the face and at least there's that, you know, people are actually starting to, um, you know, take action. You can see this around Las Vegas for a long time, uh, here in Vegas, um, during the nineties, early two thousands, uh, you had a lot of turf removal was kind of the big thing, you know, and, and that that's very important, 
you know, getting rid of grass, um, that does save a huge amount of water. In fact, uh, it, at first, and it might still be the case, that's the largest user of water in the Las Vegas Valley, vastly more uh, than anything the casinos use. Um, and so you're starting to see that again, just through my own neighborhood, uh, a lot of the, the, the common throughways. Um, or desert and landscape, you know. Yeah, they're they're just yanking that stuff out, and it's it's really um, quite obvious. Uh, it's it's going on uh, a lot of places. But unfortunately, with these things, you know, it's like turning a battleship. You, it, it takes a long time sometimes. Yeah, to build the infrastructures be... or policies to make big impacts on this. And so, yeah, you had to be turning the battleship, you know, years ago. So um, it, it's something and it's encouraging to see that there is action being taken. But even so, I, I don't think people, you know, driving by truly understand, oh, well, you know, hey, they're, they're, they're pulling grass out. But um, I would say that there are people who are truly freaking out and then people who are totally, um, you know, ignorant to the whole thing. And I, I see this with my, my, my students, I teach high school seniors, so 17 and 18 year olds, and I will routinely just, you know, survey the class and just to get a sense of um, water usage, understanding of water. Um, it's not great, you know, and, and I, I think that that's just kind of a, a mirror into society at large is, is we just don't really understand water infrastructure because one, it works too well, you know, it's, if it works well, people get angry at it this is the things like you know when when people don't have enough to worry about they start attacking things like public schools like you know water infrastructure because it's it's essentially working too well um and so uh you know i i know that this is an old adage but i heard it uh, used by um pat mulroy the snwa uh former snwa general manager she somebody told her um you know you know Unfortunately, you do your job too well. You've gotten water too well to the people of Las Vegas, and they don't really understand that there's a shortage out there. Um, and we're starting to see that, you know, and when you have lake levels that are obviously dropping, uh, you know, you can go out there and you can see the, the infrastructure at the, the, the head of the, the Hooper Dam um, is now exposed. Now you got something and people can kind of, you know, really sink their teeth into that but for the longest time um there just wasn't uh, an understanding well people just didn't care because there wasn't an understanding of the interconnectedness of uh, this western uh, economy um the, this broad shift to urban uh you know living the complete uh, you know um obsolescence of agriculture in the West outside of just a couple of places. Um, and so just like these larger uh, trends, people just were not uh, aware of. And so now, yeah, you're, you're starting to see it. Um, but, you know, as a historian, you know, I taking that kind of step back, what I hear a lot is um, uh, people scrambling, you know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the one thing that that I keep coming back to is probably the most objective viewpoint that is possible is you're not ever this isn't going to work for everybody. Not everybody's going to get what they want. And so what you hear now is this kind of scrambling as if 
there's a path forward for everyone to get what they want. And it's just not going to be the case, you know, and especially if you take, you know, broad, uh, broad perspectives and we're like, you know, six, seven, 800 years worth of perspective. And you see how humans have dealt with climate change and uh, changing water levels, just things that have you know, happened on a, on a broad global scale. Bad stuff can happen, you know, and we're fortunately in a good spot because we have such a deeply um, integrated, comprehensive uh, infrastructure. We'll be able to weather. People are not going to starve. You, you, you probably won't have like mass migrations, but all the same, certain economic activities like growing alfalfa in the Great Basin, you know, what are we doing? Um, so those kinds of things need to be addressed. And right now, when you hear, you know, John Oliver talking, it, it, it's almost like, you know, people still kind of think, oh, well, we'll be able to get you know, technology can get us through this and everyone's going to still get to do what they want. And unfortunately, um, I just don't see that being in the future. I think there's going to be some massive changes that people just can't envision now because certain things have happened here in the West for so long. Um, but, you know, those things happen until they don't. And yeah. I, I think that we're probably a lot closer to that moment than uh, people realize. It's really easy for suburban and urban Westerners to take water for granted. You know, we turn the tap on and water comes out. Uh, th there are some rural communities who felt this a little more acutely where their well water levels, you know, the water tables drop so far that their wells aren't producing water anymore. But for most of us in these big cities, we don't have to reckon with the fact that it's a finite resource. That right, there's right. only so much water. Uh, even before we get into the messiness of how it's been you know, over allocated and apportioned between the states, you know, which we'll, we'll get to in a second. Um, yeah, most of us can just turn on a tap and and have a nice drink of water. So the the immediacy of the crisis is not. It's harder for a lot of us to feel. Well, and I think though that the uh, the crisis and the acute feeling in um, you know a suburban uh, resident such as uh, you and me, um, it's kind of been outsourced. It's not that you know in in one sense, yeah, people ought to to know better. They ought to have a, a greater awareness. But water agencies are also making sure that you know those suburban urban residents are actually paying like you know closer to the true cost of water, and so while they may not have a conscious um, understanding of the value of water, they are paying through the nose for it. Yeah, you know? our water so bills are going up. We're, we're seeing huge water bills that 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 is simply um, not uniform uh, throughout the region. You know, so yes, uh, you know, you, you've got uh, rural folk who are at least more aware of the water, um, but in many cases, you know, it's 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 us uh, who are actually subsidizing that. It's the nation who's subsidizing the uh, the lower cost of water, and um, you know when you're looking at uh, the value of water and 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 this acute problem that we face, um, that's one of those things that has to be discussed. You know, yeah. because it's 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 like trying to 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 do math and not use numbers you know it's just like okay you, you've got to face reality here there's only so much to go around there's this many people this is not this is not the place for myth making 
you know yeah. we, we have to face the cold hard reality here well let's uh roll back the clock and go back 100 years to 1922 and the colorado river compact or law of the river um can you describe uh i, I think a lot of westerners are vaguely aware of it but who are the states involved and what were the provisions of this water sharing agreement for the Colorado River that they that they made? Well, so the Colorado River Compact and Law of the River, I guess you could argue that they are two separate things. Uh, the Law of the River encompasses the, the Colorado River Compact. Um, let's start there. So the Law of the River is just simply every uh, congressional bill, every federal um, uh, uh, legal statute, every court ruling, uh, every interstate compact that deals with the Colorado River ever is part of the law of the river. It's kind of a common law situation, just a, a lot, you know, this agglomeration of laws over the span of a hundred years, uh, some of which, uh, you know, reinforce each other and others that um, are seemingly contradictory, but they're still within the law of the river. Um, but then you have the Colorado River Compact, which is an interstate compact uh, between, uh, let's see, Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, uh, California, and Nevada. So the seven Colorado state, uh, seven states um, that hydrologically possess uh, the Colorado River drainage. And so um, those seven states, uh, I wouldn't say it was a, a smooth process. It took some, you know, over a decade, um, but they finally came together in uh, 1922 and agreed to share, um, well, agreed to certain provisions on sharing uh, the Colorado River. Um, because it's, you know, a, an agreement among states, it's, it's, uh, protected under the, the, uh, um, the compact clause of the constitution. So these states could essentially create a policy that applied only to these states, as long as it doesn't supersede or threaten, uh, the supremacy of Congress. And so that's allowed under the constitution. And that's what these seven states did. So, um, basically the, the, the main driver uh, to um, get the compact uh, agreed to was California. Very early on, it was uh, economically uh, advanced. Uh, you, you had uh, residents in the Imperial Valley who could put that water to use, the Colorado River. Um, and under uh, you know Western water law, uh, you have the, the doctrine of prior appropriation. And Basically, like within a state, um, if a user puts water to use first, they they get rights to that water as long as they keep using that water. Um, oh, what's the word? Uh, beneficially, beneficial use. So every single year, if you are proving that you are using this water beneficially, then you get rights to that water. The water doesn't necessarily have to go through your property. You can appropriate. You can you know, redirect it from. From afar, and this comes from uh, the gold fields of California, where miners saw a stream, you know, across a ridge line. They rerouted that stream using flumes and whatnot, and um, they were able to use that water. So we we actually get this law from uh, the miners. So up until 1920s, um, states thought, okay, well, you got this appropriation law, but it only applies within 
a state's borders. Uh, Supreme Court ruled, uh, I believe it was 1921, that actually, if a state adheres to prior appropriation, then um, that law can actually go beyond state borders too. And so the implications for the basin were if California could put the Colorado River to beneficial use first, it could hypothetically claim 100% of the flow of that river. So that's, you know, got all, every state started, uh, you know, jumping through hoops and saying, okay, we, we, we have to um, prevent this. And the way they were going to prevent that was to stymie California more than anything wanted uh, a dam on the Colorado river. This was going to be an immense expenditure, uh, wanted to use federal funds for this. This was the, uh, the way that the other states could kind of um, check California in a way. And so that, that was the carrot and the stick there. Um, and so the other states, you know, ultimately uh, agreed to support California's bid for the dam uh, and for all the, the, the development uh, in Southern California in the Imperial Valley, um, as long as it limited itself to a particular amount of water. And, you know, that was not actually set uh, during those initial um, negotiations. The only allocations that were decided in 1922 were that the upper basin well, one, that you would have an upper and a lower basin. The upper basin would be Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, and New Mexico. And then the lower basin would be Arizona, Nevada, uh, and California. And you would separate um, those two basins and then allocate what they thought was half the river's flow. And so it was 7.5 million per uh, basin, which was not yeah, What's the accurate. problem with that number? It's 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 drastically uh inflated um and even uh, even during wet periods that's more water than the yeah and that was a carried, ab- right that was an abnormally wet period um but also you know and john fleck points this out in his his recent book too they understood that there was more um like they were asking for more than was available even then that it, there's just so much uh, wishful thinking involved um, in the historical record with this river. Um, it's it's just amazing. So yeah, they were asking for more water than was uh, available, but this was all about you know negotiating positions uh, in a interstate political realm. That science was a minor player, you know. It, it really was. They they're, they're trying to you know kind of just do a lot of legal combat. And so, um, you know, they, they divided this river upper and lower and then the individual States didn't get those allocations until uh, quite a bit later, but they didn't have to worry about that at the time. Now they may have uh, over allocated uh, per basin, but at the time that didn't matter. Um, there was plenty of water. The population demands weren't maxing it yeah there was yet. there was no shortage right. um but and each state in those negotiations each state had the incentive or the desire to argue for as big of an allocation oh, as yeah. possible even if they weren't conceivably going to use it in the next few decades because they hope that at some point in the future they would right and it's a pie and there's only so many pieces and right right the next state over gets a bigger slice of the pie that's a smaller piece for you right it's a zero-sum game this is the yeah, it, it very much was. There was no, and I, it, Nevada, I've always, you know, liked to point this out, you know, Nevada got by far the, the smallest amount of water 
And I, I don't actually know this, but um, our negotiator was a was an engineer, and I just like he asked for as much water as could irrigate the known irrigable uh, acreage in Nevada. Like pure math is is how he applied this logic, and, so, and you know he actually you know suggested we get less and nevada gets 300,000 acre feet of water per year now an acre foot uh in like this era could probably uh support a, a, like one family of six or two families of four uh suburban families per year so it's you know it's 326,000 uh gallons so you know it's it's a lot of water um California got 4.4 million. Uh, Arizona was holding out for nearly 3 million. Um, and so you look at those vast amounts and this guy, um, it, he's asking for 300,000 and you look at it, he, mathematically, I, I read the transcript about how he calculated this. And I thought that's, that's cute. You know, like this guy <laughs> thinks that this is about math and, you know, California, in Arizona, you know, come with their phalanx of lawyers and they don't it's about care politics. about politics. Uh, exactly. Yeah. It's about how much can yeah. we legally claim here, science be damned, you know? So, um, yeah, it's just at the, at the, at the beginning, it just really wasn't, um, all that much of a concern because this river was just, you know, it was a big river. Kind of this myth of overabundance that we see throughout the West, right? There's no way right. we could cut down all the trees. No way that we could use up all the water because just so right. much. Well, let's pivot. Let's pivot to Nevada and Las Vegas. So, uh, your book is not a book about the Colorado River or the entire basin. It's really about Las Vegas and how Las Vegas managed its water. One thing that I didn't know that really shocked me. Well, many things that I didn't know that I learned in your book was that Las Vegas doesn't use its allocation um, until the 1970s. So there's a almost 50 year period between when Nevada, the, the Vegas region actually starts pulling water out. So what are they doing during those interceding decades? Where are they getting their water? There was a small, just as a, a little uh, caveat, they, they the city was able to tap into Lake Mead starting in the forties uh, with a, with a tiny little pipeline. Now the city is, city is the only place in Nevada that can really utilize Nevada's allocation. And so it's not like, you know, we have to distribute our water up to Elko or, you know, Reno or anything like that. So the only hydrologically logical place that we can use the water is here. So for all intents and purposes, Las Vegas is Nevada when it mm -hmm. comes to the state's allocation. So the allocation is 300,000 acre feet. Um, there was a small pipeline that the military put in place during the 1940s to help support um, military operations and munitions production here. And it was about 40,000 acre feet. And so that helped a little bit um, but by and large, the city existed solely on groundwater. And this was up until 1972. Now, it's an interesting process because it's as if Las Vegas is uh, both before and after these larger trends in, in many ways. In this case, you can watch how on a micro scale, 
water managers are dealing with problems here that we're now dealing with throughout the West. So they had what they thought was an abundant supply of groundwater. The uh, the original inhabitants of the city were just drilling wells left and right. Once they did it, it, it was like, you know, the old oil derricks that would just explode into the air. That, that was how much pressure, these were artesian as the term, an artesian well is when there's so much groundwater or uh, pressure that it just shoots the water out. And so if you drill down, it didn't take too far to, to hit the aquifers. And once you did, the water was under pressure. And so it would just come immediately to the surface. Now, it wasn't like a geyser or anything, but it would be like a decorative fountain for your front yard, like a, a big, big stream of water that could be, you know, just bubbling two or three feet in the air. Um, the literature at the time just indicated just the most outrageous thinking on this. You know, like they, there, there were there was actual thoughts that you know there was a, a underground uh, river from Tahoe and Pyramid uh, all the way down here to the Vegas Valley. It's four hundred miles of underground river, um, but people actually believe this. Um, so they're thinking that this aquifer is just going to uh, indefinitely recharge itself. Yeah. Because there, it's, it's no coming danger. from some far off source. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's no danger. And so uh, the, the hydrological uh, components of this, of these aquifers were not known um, in any sense really until the 1940s um, when the railroad, well, it might've been a little bit before, but you start to see government uh, surveys occurring in the forties. They gave uh, the community a much better understanding of where the water comes from, how much there is. Um, and it was during that decade that they found, you know, it's uh, I'm not sure how, if you or, you know, the listeners are familiar with Las Vegas, but to the North and the West of the city are two mountain ranges, both of which uh, one is just under 10,000 feet and the other is just over 10,000 feet. So they, they can capture significant amounts of uh, moisture in the winter um, and the summer during the, uh, the monsoonal uh, season. And those mountains over the span of millions of years were collecting water and it was then percolating uh, down the mountainsides through the gravel and then under um, into the Las Vegas Valley. And so the Las Vegas Valley was, was actually quite uh, verdant. It was a logical place for people to stop. Uh, there were huge mesquite, uh, mesquite tree bogs. Um, it looked rather inviting compared to the, the Mojave Desert around it. So that's initially what attracted uh, European settlers here. It attracted the railroad because there was an obvious source of water here. Um, and once the railroad came to town, like you had some minor ranching uh, that really had very little effect. But once it went to the railroad, you have an industrial use of water uh, and then it becomes commoditized. And that's when you really start to see this um, these mountains are no longer able to, to generate enough water. They can't produce enough water um, to outpace what's now being used by the railroad. Um, the railroad is the main economic driver, not only for Vegas, but, you know, most cities in the mm -hmm. West at the time. And so 
it brought all kinds of settlers here who then started just tapping their own water. Um, and it was just this weird situation too. You, you look back, the entire city was essentially just a company town. And it's weird to read transcripts where like you're looking at water managers, but they're railroad employees, but they're also like city managers too. They have to like dictate, you know, where's the new subdivision going? How much are we going to charge for water? Um, so it was just kind of this this private um, private city, really. Um, and so you have this this economic driver that then starts, you know, attracting people here. And um, the the understanding of the water use is just like there's there's no understanding of it. People are you know uh, planting lawns. Um, one of the stories I've seen uh, in several places, in fact. Uh, Richard Bryan, the former senator from the state, former governor as well, he and I are on a, a, a Preserve Nevada board together. And I, I'm always, he's he's in his 80s and he grew up here. And so he's just got the most amazing stories about Vegas. Uh, he said as a kid, he had neighbors who would hire him to uh, just turn on the, the spigot. When they would go up to Mount Charleston, that's one of those mountain ranges I mentioned earlier, they'd go up there to camp for the weekend. And they would just leave the sprinkler on all weekend, you know, just to make sure that the grass didn't die. So that was a pretty common thing. That was a common understanding uh, about that. That was a common practice with water. Um, it was, you know, during the 40s and 50s with World War II really uh, ramping up um, the, the local economy, uh, the post-war years when uh, tourism becomes an, a, a viable economic um, uh, endeavor, that's when you start to, like, lo the locals came together and finally, yeah, we have to come up with a uh, a water district to manage the water. Mm -hmm. And then once you have that, then you have this, you know, just proliferation of information. And then this kind of cold, hard reality started staring folks in the face. And so in the 40s and 50s, um, local water managers realize, oh my gosh, we, we have to do something. We have to tap into, um, Lake Mead. And so it's interesting in one sense in that they all, they all realize that now we have a finite resource, truly finite, because we're talking about groundwater, but conservation was not the, the, the key. It was building that infrastructure out to Lake Mead. Because there we have an infinite resource, right? Yes. So let, don't don't worry about the groundwater or saving water. We just need to worry about infrastructure right. bringing this other this other source. So by the seven so by the seventies and eighties, though, population now is far outpaced of the available water or the available infrastructure, right? And you it have you have, have all these different municipalities and different water districts drilling wells, pulling as much water as they can, right? Right, right. You do have um, the, the Las Vegas Valley Water District was the kind of the first um, metropolitan style uh, agency here where it could, you know, it could transcend, you know, municipal boundaries. Um, but you still had a lot of individuals who were um, able to um, drill their own water. And so, you know, the, the district for many years had a concerted effort to buy those people out and put them onto this centralized system. Um, but 
how does this then shift to the SNWA? So the Southern Nevada Water Authority becomes okay. uh, eventually, which uh, is formed in the, uh, what year is that? 91. 91. How, yeah. how, does, how does that replace and kind of supersede the different municipalities uh, and this kind of, you know, I mean, you use the term like balkanized, right? Like this hodgepodge, right, of, right. this patchwork of different water districts. Um, how does the SNWA form to kind of control the whole region? And why was that the, the, the solution that was sought for these problems? Well, I think in, in some ways you had the Las Vegas Valley Water District was in like very much a precursor of uh, what the SNWA later became. It was uh, metropolitan in scope. It could, it had territory, um, but it was not, it didn't envision the rise of North Las Vegas, of Boulder City, of Henderson. You know, those were really far off. If you're, you know, in downtown Henderson and you drive to the northwest part of Las Vegas now, that's that's 35 miles. So in the 1940s, Henderson was a an ammo uh production site and a company town. It was way out there. Not even a suburb. And now no, no it's <laughs> yeah. it's it suburb has a nice connotation as to where you'd want to live. This was a grungy, you know, kind of, you know, beat down um, blue collar kind of company town. So it did not have uh, um, the, the, the reputation it does today. Um, same with North Las Vegas. That was a, that was a military site. Um, you know, Nellis Air Force Base is there now. Um, these were all highly disparate um, communities. And Las Vegas was, you know, the downtown Las Vegas, you had the, the the strip casinos, but there was nothing on either side of the strip casinos. They were just simply casinos along a freeway or a highway. So the district did fine under those conditions. But then when you start to have that metropolitan growth where you have infill and suburban uh, growth everywhere, then you have these entities with their own history and they're going to start protecting their water rights. They were not part of the district earlier. They had their own water rights allocated to them, uh, I think by the federal government at the time, because there were military installations then transferred to the state. So they were protecting that. And now those cities then started to really uh, push for uh, development and uh, for real estate development um, and building more houses, businesses. They wanted to grow. And so in the 70s and 80s, you, you start to see this metropolitan growth really kick off in the valley. Um, it was between 1970 and 1980. I think this, the, the city doubled in size. It, it's never done that. Um, that was the biggest uh, lurch forward uh, for all the, the talk of Las Vegas's growth. It, it never grew by you know a factor of two. So, uh, and by Las decade, Vegas, do you mean kind of like the entire the, Vegas yes, area? The, the met now starting metro to include area. Henderson and some of these other places right. that are part of the metro. Okay. Right, the, the metro area. So, um, you know, it started off at, you know, quarter of a million in 1970 and jumps to, you know, nearly 500,000 uh, a decade later. That that was massive. And that that's the de that's the key decade where they finally tapped into the uh, the Colorado River. Um, 
and once they once they you know got that first pipeline in 72 um there you you can read that kind of like oh we're saved it's never gonna end and then by the early 1980s like less than eight years later they're like oh my god not only do we need to uh, build the second part of the pipeline because the first pipeline only got 150,000 acre feet to the city. Um, but then they started talking about not only do they need to build the second pipeline, but now we really need to do something as, to curb the waste to do something because we're going to run out of that too. So yeah, the 1980s, there was this this kind of, you know, they're doing the same thing over. They realize, okay, we don't have enough water here. What are we going to do? Um, a lot of the reason for lack of water was there was no comprehensive plan for the community. It was, you know, your classic tragedy of the commons. Everybody's using their individual allocations. Each city had an individual allocation through the state. And basically, so Henderson would approach, you know, the Colorado River Commission, which is a state agency. And that's how they got their water from the Colorado River. Now, the Colorado River Commission essentially based each city's um, allocation on what they used the year before. So you know, they want so, to use as much uh, as they can. So they right. get it bigger. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so it's the whole use it or lose it yeah. you know, philosophy. Um, and you, you're having the tragedy of the commons. Nobody's really concerned about um, conserving because they see the city across the way making money hand over fisk because they're going ahead and using all their water for development. So this system leads to inefficiency, waste, uh, competitive water, competitive oh, use of a finite resource, which is yeah, kind of bonkers to wrap your head around. So the SNWA well, it, then is formed to try to take the entire region and run it all more efficiently. Right. Uh, conserve right, to more consolidate water. the water. Yeah. And, you know, not to mention a, a just a, a toxic political culture down here, too, where all these cities are just, you know, eyeballing each other uh, with the deepest suspicion. Um, right. And you, so, you know, you can, yeah. And you can read, you know, transcripts like people were literally yelling at each other at these planning meetings over water um, and just like really nasty uh, to each other. And so, yeah, the SNWA came out of this because you had a few people within this water community who could see the road ahead and realized this isn't going to work. We need to figure this out and started to, you know, extend all the branches and proposals as to, okay, let's get together. Let's start a planning process here. Um, And so ultimately, you know, that's that shortage of the 1980s and political toxicity ironically led to you know this um, cohesive unit the snwa which then took control of the state's uh water allocation yeah i want i want to get to that eventually like because the snwa morphs into something i did not expect or was not aware of but first it is this kind of um metropolitan wide kind of super water agency is that something that's unique to las vegas or is this something we see in other large metropolitan areas in the southwest have they gone through similar processes of kind of a balkanized patchwork of districts that then coalesce into a big mega district the the this is unique uh there's no other metro area in the west uh where the entirety 
the local water supply is administered by one. Um, Why do you think that happened in Vegas and say not Phoenix or Salt Lake or, you know, any other number of big metro areas? Uh, two reasons primarily. I think one is that it's it's comparatively new. Um, you know, all of Vegas's growth occurred in the 20th century. And so it didn't have as deep-seated community um, allegiances, you know, that, that you find in, in Arizona, uh, which is truly ancient, you know, when you think about like how long people have been living there, uh, various cultures, uh, California, um, there just wasn't the uh, length of time here and tied to that land because you really couldn't California throw anything on the ground it's going to grow you know you, you can make a, an economy in so many different places in California where then people can move and devote their lives to and then protect and work to protect um, you just didn't have that here in Las Vegas um, two the only place you can use the state's water is here and so there's no uh, contenders beyond the horizon. Uh, whereas, you know, Tucson and Phoenix are, are vying for the same water, hundreds of miles apart. And so, um, again, this is the only place that that could happen. And so, it was uniquely um, advantaged in that sense. So this is where we get another thing that really. I just never thought of it, and it's really intuitive once, as you've already kind of explained it. The SNWA, which is a, you know, regional, like multi-municipal water agency, um, essentially becomes the water agency for the entire state of Nevada, because it's, in especially in terms of the Colorado River Compact and this interstate competition for that water, the rest of the state of Nevada has nothing to gain or benefit, like they're not going to be using that water. And so you now have a local, uh, you know, city water agency engaging in interstate negotiations and politics, which I don't think right, I've right. seen. I don't think I've seen that examples of something like that happening elsewhere in the West. Not in this sense. Now, just to be clear, I mean, California, or, uh, you know, the SNWA is essentially on a state level. Um, it makes no decisions over water that don't deal with the Colorado River, though. And so um, while it is kind of like this quasi-state agency, it's, it has no impact on Reno or Carson City, things that are hydrologically unrelated to um, uh, the Colorado River. But are Reno so or again, Carson City, Elko, are they competing with other states for their water? No. Um, like they're kind of more self-contained within the state. They are. And that, of course, we could definitely have a conversation about uh, Reno because I think that uh, their time is coming. And I think the SNWA actually serves as kind of a, a potential lesson for that because Reno gets its water from uh, a California based source. Um, so, again, they, but you know, that they have a whole different interstate uh, situation up there. And so the, the, the reality on the ground is. There's simply no way that Northern Nevada can use anything Las Vegas has hydrologically. And so within that realm, the SNWA leadership really uh, pushed for um, a seat at the table with uh, with respect to like 
Nevada agency, the, the ability to negotiate for water because all of the water that the state is, is allotted can only be used here. And so locals wanted the uh, ability to um, navigate that, that, that political, uh, you know, uh, context. It, 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 in some ways, you know, I'm sure there are hydrologists up in Reno who are, are able, you know, negotiators, but um, the pride, I think, kind of got into it too, where hey, the rest of the state has nothing to do with what we're dealing with down here. We need to be able to um, have some control over our destiny. And so you, you saw a, a major push locally um, for the uh, Colorado River Commission, which is part of the, the executive branch of the state of Nevada, to be recomprised. Um, it used to have five uh, governor's uh, appointees. Um, what didn't matter where the governor was from, um, you know, the governor would have the choice to appoint the five members of this commission, which would then have the legal authority to negotiate with the Bureau of Reclamation and in any interstate negotiations. So the SNWA pushed to recomprise that so that um, the new uh, composition is seven members, three of whom are SNWA appointees. And so that gives them, you know, a major voting block on this state level agency, um, which brings them to this. Essentially, they are uh, a state level agency in, in everything but name only. And so I don't know if people realized how weird it was that that Pat Mulroy was talking with, uh, you know, the the. Uh, the governor of Colorado, all of these high level, uh, you know, the secretary of interior. Why do you have a local Las Vegan who is driving negotiations for an interstate river? And that that is a huge story. Um, and just like when, when, you know, I guess, you know, being a government teacher, I, I, I can understand why people don't have as uh clear an idea on federalism uh, as I would like them to. However, that's still weird. You know, when you're thinking about a local who is able to negotiate with uh, the governor of Colorado, that's, that's not normal. Um, And so it is a unique situation here um, in a position that the SNWA, to my mind, I have not seen too many agencies, uh, certainly not a water agency. You might have some, you know, um, the harbors commission uh, in, you know, New York, Certain yeah. things like that, but like some port commissions that maybe I've have seen. outsized, yeah, yeah, authority. But aside from that, I've never seen, I've never seen anything like that. Well, you know, as we kind of wrap up, I wanted to move towards uh, the present and, you know, ask what lessons Las Vegas may have to offer to the rest of the West and especially the Southwest. But I guess one problem with that question is. Is the Las Vegas situation so unique that there's not many applicable lessons for the rest of us to learn? Or, or, or do you think there's things, because the rest of us are, we don't have, uh, you know, these, a, a huge SNWA running into entire regions, you know, um, uh, and, and hydrologically, we're all in very different situations as well. So uh, what, what lessons do you think that 
that Vegas can offer if Salt Lake or Phoenix or Tucson or or I think a lot like St. George, Utah, who, you know, just right up the right, road from right. you, who's now talking about building a, I don't know how many billion dollar pipeline, you know, 300 miles, I don't remember how many miles it is over to Lake Powell to apparently draw water out of Lake Powell, which itself yeah. is almost at Deadpool level, right? And anyway, that, so like, like, yeah. like what, what lessons should the rest of us take from, from your very in-depth look at how uh, Vegas has negotiated all of this over the last you know 100 plus years well i i guess like it's just like kind of everybody's um automatic response anymore to talk about oh how hard everything is for the colorado river oh god the politics oh it's like okay all right fine we get that um what the snwa example proves though is that when people's backs against or against the wall they can act collectively and the uh, the reality the difficulty the fear that water managers are feeling throughout the colorado river basin is no more acute no different than the fear that locals felt here you know so yeah so the scale is different but you can't say that one person's fear isn't as valid as the next okay so you have the same mentalities that are that were in place in 91 locally as are in place here now nationally or regionally so when local governments here realized um that they either work together or they run out of water they took action i i think that this idea this realization of course just took it's going to take longer uh, period of time to settle in on a regional scale, but I think we're there. Um, and it's, we're, yeah, we, st I still hear pie in the sky. I mean, clearly the St. George pipeline is the most absurd thing. It, it doesn't make sense hydrologically legally. There's no, that's simply pushing for a better negotiating position. And um, that that's a sheer act of desperation. I don't. I I can't believe that anyone involved in that actually thinks that's going to work. <laughs> so you you have this understanding of um, shortage and reality, but it it just takes some time before the stark reality of that settles in. Now, the one thing that I I still don't think people are properly uh, internalizing it. And this is part of that process of understanding, you know, what are the actual limits um, is, you know, the United States uh, relationship to Mexico and to native Americans. Now, Mexico, it's not a part of the Colorado river compact, but water users of the Colorado right. river. So the, uh, in both cases, that's correct. Um, however, Mexico is that that's at the national level. That is an interstate. That's that's an international issue that would supersede anything uh, that the compact had. If if push came to shove, the, the federal, the national government would have to make sure that Mexico gets that water. Now, what we could see is, um, you know, a, 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 these, you know, dark um moods where I'll kind of, you know, go down a rabbit hole and think, okay, if that, if that happened, then you would see, you know, the secretary of interior telling all states, 
in the basin, sorry, but Mexico gets their water. Um, that's because it's a, a an international issue, uh, the purview of the federal government. What I then see is like this new round of you know sagebrush rebels who who are not facing reality themselves, but just want to hoard the water uh, from the Colorado River. You know, so you've got that dynamic, which um, is very serious. Uh, you know, the, the international nature of this river, the binational uh, nature. Uh, those farmers down in Mexico are every bit as dependent on that same river as, you know, some of the hysterics that you hear above the border, but it's like this kind of, again, it's, it's, we talk about this river as if Mexico doesn't exist, you know, and it's like, that needs to be front and center. Um, And then native American rights, you know, if, if, if we're a, a nation that believes in the rule of law, Native Americans are going to get the water. Especially if you're so, talking prior appropriation, you know. Yeah. You you can either say, no, they're not going to get the water, which certainly has precedent in this in nation's history. But you can't also then say that we believe in the rule of law because, you know, with the Winters Doctor or the Winters Decision, those are very solid um, rights for american indians and um it's 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 only going to get worse that, that that's the thing is we think we're in a shortage now and we're already like we're we're, we're starting to really you know yeah we got to do something we have still not truly acknowledged native american rights and uh mexican water rights and so until that's all just like on the table and we finally like we're exhausted because, you know, we've just had this knockdown drag out fight without, you know, our, our family members in the in the in the basin. And you're just you're exhausted from the fight that that's where we need to be before we can really kind of move forward. Now, the SNWA, they got to that point. Those mm-hmm. the negotiators, they were exhausted. They realized there's just no way forward unless we do this. I think we we I hope we get there. Uh, within the basin, uh, with it, within enough time uh, that there's still water, um, but um, I, I don't think we're there yet. Mm. Um, so I, I am being a little bit. Uh, I always feel a little embarrassed when I voice optimistic uh, opinions. Um, so I'll, I'll say it with that caveat. But I do think that because it's been done in the Las Vegas Valley that proves humans are capable of working together on a regional level. And I think that the conditions could be just about right basin wide uh, for us to start um, having that actual discussion. And as I proposed in the book, you know, an addition, like a, a new layer to an interstate compact where you now have um you know, something akin to NATO, you know, like, like a, like a multi-state agency with, with members from each state that can then make decisions based on water allocations and water policy at that regional level. Well, that's surprisingly optimistic. Uh, I am I I much, I'd much rather end on that than some dark, horrible. Um, I mean, I've, I've mentioned, I think on the podcast before, um, I, one time I was driving down to Monument Valley to run an ultra marathon, and I was listening to an audiobook during the drive. And then while I was running, and it was this post apocalyptic Southwest book called The Water Knife 
about. And you know, funny. And I was like, why did I choose? Like, so I'm out there like really thirsty running this ultra marathon. I'm like, this was not the book to choose this book about lack of water and people, you know, going thirsty. But so, so your, your your ending statements are much more optimistic. Well, I've listened to, I actually, I stopped listening to that book, uh, doing, much the same. I was I was doing some uh, some mountain biking out here in the desert, and I would listen to that on my mountain bike rides, and it was just as dusty as Monument Valley. Yeah. And uh, I stopped listening to it because I'm like, this just God, this is just the most. It's just awful, like the the imagery uh, that you know he was he was conveying, and great story. Um, although too, I, too I just can't home, see. <laughs> Well, no, I, I, I don't see that happening. Uh, but, uh, but yes, I, uh, I, I, I know the book that you're talking about. I, I knew, in fact, the second you started talking, I'm like, I bet it's the water. That's knife. The water knife yeah. Um, yeah. well, uh, what are you, um, what are you working on next? And then, you know, we probably should let our listeners go. Okay. Um, well, two things i'm getting more into uh public educational policy so i'm pursuing um avenues in that realm i'm very interested in uh how public schools teach uh, um social studies uh, specifically civics education um but uh aside from that also looking at um broader colorado river history environmental history looking at the uh the basin as a whole uh spending less time on the uh, current uh, situation and looking much more at um, archaeological ancient history as well, uh, just to get a better sense of this region, which is just incredibly um, climatologically volatile for all of its history. And so I think that that has a lot of uh, applicability now because I think we've really gotten, well, we've convinced ourselves that what we see outside is some type of static reality. Um, And these things can really change and it's had an impact on the human societies that have lived here, um, you know, in prehistory and in historical times. So that's just something I'm really interested in and uh, potentially write a book about that someday. Great. Well, I hope you do. Uh, thanks for uh, spending some time with us. Congrats on this book. Um, I, I've been waiting. I mean, I've known you for a while and I've been waiting for this book for some time. So I'm excited to see it out here for us. Uh, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. All right. Take care, Christian. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through. Or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We're an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understandings about the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream, have an annual funding cycle with award, grant, and fellowship categories that nearly anyone researching or working on the region from any disciplinary approach or towards any final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D Center. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Dahl, Anderson, with an O, dot com. 
I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, and just about everything else, so you can direct any praise or critique my way. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. Recently, my book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands, published by Texas A&M University Press in 2018, won the Best Historical Nonfiction Book Award from the Western Writers of America. In an anthology I co-edited with P. Jane Hafen, entitled Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, published by the University of Utah Press in 2019, won the Metcalf Best Anthology Book Prize from the John Whitmer Historical Association. Here at the Red Center, I'm also general editor and project manager of a great digital history, uh, public history project named Intermountain Histories. It's a free mobile app and website, uh, intermountainhistories.org, that curates student-researched and written micro-histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or anything else, head to bwrensink, that's R-E-N-S-I-N-K, Org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. Cheers. <laughs>